Open with me in your Bibles to Matthew 16, and then we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 20. And it really does connect, connect with the next passage, but time's sake, we would be here for hours if we tried to do both. So let's turn to Matthew 16, and we will just read verses 13 to 20, but I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger this morning. I'm going to tell you, hang on for next week. All right, so let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, authoritative, and errant word. Hear the very word of God to you this morning. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Now, when I uh, attended college, I remember I went to uh, a Christian college. We would have professors, and one professor in particular, that whenever he taught, he would give you the views. On those days, we had like a blackboard, I think. We might have started getting into the whiteboard. I don't remember. Maybe we did have a whiteboard. But he would go on the board, and he would say this. This theologian about this passage believes that it means this. And then this school of thought believes that it means this. And he would give like the four different views. And then the class would almost be over. And some of us, uh, especially myself, I got to be honest, I'd be like, that's all nice. But what do you believe? What do you think that the passage teaches? You know, and some say this and some say that. That's great. But what do, what do you think? What's going on here in this passage is similar. Not exactly, but it's very similar in this sense. This is the last withdrawal of Jesus. One last time before he heads on the trail where he knows it's going to end for him. Humanly speaking, of course. He knows he's got to go to that path that leads to Calvary. And he knows he's going to have to suffer humiliation. He's going to die. And then he's going to be raised up on the third day. But before he does that, he knows he's got to take, he's taking his disciples aside to teach them in the quietness one last time as it were and he comes with the big question and the big question that it's been leading to all these miracles all this teaching all his healing all everything has been leading to this point and he asks them first the general question who do the people say that i am and that's kind of safe, isn't it? Because you can kind of just survey and say, well, some people, Lord, think you're this. Some people think you're that. But what Jesus does here in this passage, He's going to ask them to take some responsibility now. 
And now they're not going to be able to hide behind this person says this and this person says that. Now they've got to step out on a limb and now they've got to take responsibility for their answer. Jesus' entire ministry has led up to this moment and the main and the big question of the hour, and even in our day and age, it's still the big question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? That's the question here. Who do men say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? It's a question that can't be escaped especially in modern times, and the gospel really has been getting out around the world to nation after nation. It's no surprise in this text that Peter speaks up first for the disciples. Many times that we've seen in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see it again when Jesus asks them a question or uh, when Jesus is relating with them. The first person in line who jumps up to the front of the line is Peter. Peter's always the guy, you know, it's kind of like the rest of the disciples apparently had no problem with this. It's kind of like, ask Mikey, you know, he'll, he'll try it. So it's kind of like push Peter up front, right? Because so Peter is always a spokesperson and many times, what does Peter do? We've heard it in the past, I've heard it since I got saved, he puts his foot in his mouth, right? That's Peter, you know, that lovable Peter, but he kind of gets himself into a lot of sticky situations. But in this case, in this case, we don't see the, the normal dullness or slowness to believe and understand. This time, he hits the nail right on the head. He answers for the rest of the disciples. And he gives a clear, true, Jesus-approved answer. He simply says this, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, no matter how deeply or superficially Peter understood that answer at that point in redemptive history, Peter's at least saying two things. Follow with me. This is very important. He's saying two things. He's saying, first of all, Jesus, you are the anointed one that God promised in all the Old Testament scriptures. For hundreds and hundreds of years, you promised that there would be a son of David and he would sit on the throne and he would rule and he would deliver God's people. Listen, listen to me. This is important. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Oh, think about that. When we think Jesus Christ, you think of it as like, you know, John Smith. No, 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 no. Christ is actually the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Masa, or we all know it as Messiah. And the word Messiah literally means anointed one. So you go to the Old Testament and you see what's an anointed one. Well, there's three offices in the Old Testament where God has them anointed to office. You know what they are. Prophet, priest, and king. And there was no one individual in the Old Testament who held all three of those offices simultaneously. Some may have held two, like David was a prophet and a king, but he was not a priest. He was not allowed to go in into the Holy of Holies and offer up a sacrifice. He would have dropped dead. Right? But in this person of Jesus of Nazareth, he's the one. He's the only hope of God's people. He's the one that God made all his promises about. He is the the chosen one. And that's an important revelation. And that's an important fact about who he is. Is. That's number one. The second thing, and there's only two things about th- th- in this confession. The second thing that Peter is confessing 
and that the rest of the church believes to this day is that Jesus is the son not of the dead, unable to save man-made gods of this world, but he is the son of the living and true God who created heavens heavens and the earth. He is the unique son of God. He's not a son of God like we all are through faith in Christ. Right? Believers. He is the son of God. You know, like in the book of John where he says, what my fathers do, what my father does, I could do likewise. (laughs) He raises the dead, I can raise the dead. That's a little different than you and me. Amen? The prophets of old would have to say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus just said, that's what I say. I tell you. (laughs) And Peter is acknowledging here in a very powerful, clear way, Jesus is the promised Messiah, and he is the unique son of the living God. Now, how folks answer this question today, how you and I answer this question today, makes all the difference in the world. Because listen, listen, before I go to my next point, by the way, here's the encouraging thing. I'm already in the middle of my first point. You guys thought this was just the introduction. You should be encouraged by that. But, so here's the thing. If he is the son of the living God, he's not merely the king of a small nation, but he's the king of all kings. Your response to him, what you believe about him, will determine God's posture toward you. Think about that. Whether or not you bow down and Acknowledge Him as King and worship Him and trust Him and follow Him and entrust yourself to Him will make the difference between literally paradise and misery for you personally. To acknowledge that confession that Peter confessed means you are acknowledging that he has rightful ownership of your life, that he has the right to call the shots, and that he will rule you through his spirit and his word, and in a limited sense, which we'll talk about later, through his church. It's a huge confession. It's not just an intellectual exercise, is it? Because if he's God, then you need to bow down and worship. One thing we often hear I think this is powerful when we share the gospel. Well, what about those who haven't heard? The Apostle Paul has a lot to say about that in Romans. But I just want to give you one answer to that. The question is not what about those who haven't heard, is it, this morning? The question is what about you? You have heard. What will you do with the Christ? Gigantic question. Peter gives the right answer that the church forever after has confessed. But he's about to see, and this is the second thing I want to show you from the text, is that this confession, this understanding of who Jesus is, and this revelation, did not come from himself. He wasn't taught it by another person. He didn't come up with it with any human effort. But rather, it was a divine gift of God's revelation. And so let's turn from the confession to the confessor, Peter, and how he's blessed. 
So look at verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now we see in this text that Jesus accepts his answer as the gospel truth, and the pun is intended. He makes one thing abundantly clear. This confession that Peter so articulately articulately confessed was not something he figured out on his own or that he learned and repeated from someone else, but it was a divine gift of Jesus' Father, God the Father. With just one sentence, Jesus is both encouraging Peter by pronouncing him blessed, but also humbling Peter at the same time. Because listen, Peter cannot take credit for that confession. It's not like, way to go, chip off the old block, good boy. That's not what he's doing. What Jesus is acknowledging, what Peter has to acknowledge is, you've only come to this conclusion because God himself gave you that revelation. Because he gave you, he opened your eyes to understand and to see this, Peter. You're blessed because God has blessed you. Because as a free gift of his grace, he's given you understanding. important to see that to me it clearly displays the utter depravity and the inability of man to save himself to drum up by himself his own wisdom because ultimately if man is to understand confess and believe the truth then god has to open up his mind and his heart by his grace it's in the book of Acts, just a cross-reference very quickly. In the book of Acts, I believe it's chapter 14. If you remember, the Apostle Paul is preaching to Lydia. And what does it say? It says, and the Lord opened her heart to believe Paul's message. In other words, why did Paul believe? Because the, um, why did Lydia believe? Because God opened her heart by His grace. It wasn't that Lydia was smarter than the other folks around. It wasn't that she was holier. It was that she was touched by the mercy and the grace of God. And that's what we see here. To God alone be the glory. Peter, now listen, Peter was definitely not smarter than the other apostles. Can I get an amen? And he was definitely not holier. Remember, later on we're going to see he needs to learn that lesson. Because he says, Lord, they all might desert you, but I'll never deny you. And we know what Jesus says. Oh yeah? By the time the cock crows, you'll have denied me three times. So he's not holier, he's not better, he's not smarter, he's not wiser, not of greater stature. We see, it was, as a matter of fact, we're going to see next week, he was even used by the devil to tempt Jesus. No, Peter cannot take credit for this. It's to God alone. Gets the glory. One commentator puts it this way. Here again is the mystery that has puzzled and disturbed many minds. Jesus offered his works as a call to faith and held man responsible for their response to those works, yet he accounts every confession of faith a work of God. So it was of Peter, so it is with us. In other words, Jesus would say, if you're not going to believe because of what I say, believe in because of my miracles. So he still held man responsible when in the light of all these miraculous things that he did, people wouldn't believe. But ultimately, we see the so- God's sovereign side of things. God has to open their eyes. Right? Look at the Old Testament. 
They walked through the sea. And many of them still died as unbelievers. We are dependent on the grace and the mercy of God. So we see the confessor is blessed. And the last thing I'm going to point out from the text is that the foundation was set. Let's take a look at this. We're going to see it in verses 18 to 20. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. The big question of this text, and I'm going to summarize as quickly as possible for you, Theologians have, literally, there's hundreds of, of comments on this. There's, there's all kinds of views on this. When, when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, what does the this refer to? Okay, the first view, um, which is often, it's historic Roman Catholic view, and I'm only going to bring a few of them to your attention, is that Peter is the rock that Jesus was talking about. But then what they do is interesting is that they make um, an implication of that that isn't necessarily so. They jump to conclusions. They say, so what's going on here is Jesus is conferring the power on Peter as the first bishop of Rome. And then Peter successively, uh, successively continues to anoint the bishop of Rome and then that bishop anoints the next bishop. And it goes all the way to the Pope today can trace his um, ordination going all the way back here to the Apostle Peter. That would be the Roman Catholic view. And that's the view that Peter is the rock that Jesus builds the church on. So as you can imagine, the Reformers didn't like that implication. So they believe, as they look at the text, well, the rock that the church is built on is not Peter, it's the confession of Peter. So it's built on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they had some predecessors from the early church who also taught this. So they didn't just make it up. St. Augustine and St. Jerome, those were the two biggies, by the way, back in their day, 400 AD. They also held to that view. So that's the second view. The third view, these people are especially spiritual. They say Jesus himself is the rock. So Jesus was saying, you are Peter, and on this rock, and he was kind of doing this, (laughs) I will build my church. And where they build their argument is, often in the Bible, Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. So, and, and and, And their argument would be, now, he would never build his church on some fallible human, so he must be the rock. Those are the three biggies, and that's where I'm going to stop giving you the the views. And I'm going to tell you that I agree with many of the modern commentators that we have to, somehow, you have to include Peter in on, the trans, on your interpretation. Because in the Greek, it says, this is what it literally says, it says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. You see, Jesus is using a play on words. So there is no question that in some way, shape, or form, Jesus is saying on Peter, I will build my church. Now, you guys should be a little bit interested, like, wow, I can't believe Pastor Santo (laughs) holds to that view. Well, let me explain to you quickly 
why so many people stray away from the plain meaning of the text. They're afraid that if they acknowledge that Jesus is speaking of Peter in some sense, then they have to acknowledge that the Catholic Church is right and that, you know, the papacy is correct. Well, you don't have to do that in order to hold to the plain words that are spoken. What Jesus was doing in this passage was setting the very foundation of the church. And indeed, the foundation is set on Peter and the rest of the apostles. It's not Peter to the exclusion of all the other apostles. It's he's speaking to Peter as the spokesman and as the leader of the twelve. So when Jesus says, I will build my church on you, Peter, he is including the rest of the apostles. Now, you would have to say, well, if that is the correct interpretation of this passage, we would think that the rest of the New Testament would corroborate this, wouldn't we? We would think somewhere in the Bible we would have a teaching that Peter and the rest of the apostles are the foundation that the church is built on. Now, where would we get an idea like that? Well, actually, we do have that, don't we? Turn with me if you have your Bibles. We read it earlier to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. And they teach us this. This is what the Apostle Paul said, speaking to the believers in Ephesus. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's people, listen up, and members of God's household. Look at verse 20. What? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So Peter and the apostles are the foundation. And that is what Jesus said he would build his church on. Now listen, this explains why Jesus spent so much of his time, when you look at his three brief years of ministry, he spent so much of his time pouring his life, his teaching, his very self into who? Twelve men. Amen? As a matter of fact, we know that in the Bible, and out of those 12, he took three in particular to see very special events, like the one Pete's going to preach on in a few weeks. The Transfiguration. Who does he take with him? Peter, James, and John. They were the inner circle within the inner, inner circle. Jesus, the master builder of his church, who himself is indeed the chief cornerstone, promised to build his church on this foundation. Peter and the rest of the apostles. Not their mystical passing on of some apostolic succession through the laying on of hands, but how does he build it on them? Think about it. It's through their teaching, their preaching, and of course, through the New Testament scriptures that God gave us through them. To this day, it's still our foundation. Can I get an amen? I still speak from this word. What did Paul say? What did Peter say in the inspired word of God? They are the foundation. And think about it. In the book of Acts, what happens? Peter and and, and the rest of the apostles preach the good news, don't they? And they begin to inaugurate the New Testament church as they carry out the continued ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now listen. Robert Coleman in his uh, famous book, The Master Plan of Evangelists, he points out something important for us to see. 
men were Jesus' method. He poured himself into these men. He had no plan B. There was no other plan. Oh, if this doesn't work out, I got another one. No. This is the plan. This is the plan to this day. God uses men, not programs, to build his kingdom. It's so important to get this right. I just want to take just a couple more moments to show you that it's not just Peter that Jesus is talking to, but that he's talking as well to the other apostles. Now, in our text, he says, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Well, earlier in chapter 13, verses 11 and 16, he said this to all of his apostles. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. So in other words, it wasn't only Peter to whom these things were revealed, right? They were also revealed to the rest of his brethren, the apostles. In verse 19 of our text, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then later in 1818, we're going to get to that later, he says this, Jesus says this to all of his apostles, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I know that's a lot of theology. I know you had a track with me for a little while. But now I'm going to preach. Some commentators object to this understanding of the text I just presented to you because they say, here's their argument, it's unthinkable that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would build His church on these imperfect, impetuous, and fallible men, especially the Apostle Peter, And they go on to list all of Peter's indiscretions, his imperfections, his sins, as they are pointed out in the gospel accounts. But this is what I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, this is what's important for us today. That's precisely the point, isn't it? The church is indeed built on weak, faltering, often failing, imperfect men. God has designed it that way. Why? Why? so that He will get all the glory in the end, that not to us, O Lord, not to us be glory, but the glory be to Your name. Jesus in this text is the builder. Amen? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will will not prevail. Look, one of my favorite texts that always brings me to tears, and and I'm just going to mention it quickly, is you remember, later on we'll get to this, I believe. I know it's in Luke's Gospel. I don't remember if he gets into details of Matthew, but if you remember... Jesus says to Peter later on, Peter, Peter, Simon Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as we. But you remember what Jesus says after that? I have prayed for you, but I have prayed for you. When you return, strengthen your brethren. Are you with me? In other words, the Lord Jesus will make sure that his men will not fail. You get that? That's the good news. The good news is he has chosen to use weak, messed up, and Peter's going to fall, and he's going to fall, he's going to make a doozy of a fall. This is where you can say amen. And yet, these are the men that God has chosen to build his church on. Think about it this way. This might help you kind of get some clarity. He's using 
He's used, Jesus has used, fallible men to give us what? His infallible word. Right? We know that. It's a fact. He's chosen to use faltering, imperfect men, imperfect men to bring us his unfailing, perfect gospel. He's chosen to use powerless, ordinary men to bring forth his powerful, extraordinary word that transforms lost sinners into redeemed saints. I don't know about you. This gets me excited. This encourages me. This gives me hope. This makes me say, you know what? I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. I got a reason. Because he's faithful. This is what's important to see. Throughout the ages, the church has had some dark times. Throughout the ages, the church has failed. The church has committed many sins. There have been what we would call dark ages. And yet, here's the good news. Jesus continued to be faithful and always, always brought his church through. Can I get an amen? In the darkest of hours, Jesus always continued to further his kingdom and further his church. For his glory. It's true. Judgment begins first in the household of God. But for all of her black eyes, all of her bruises, all of her stains, she is still the temple of the living God and the gates of hell will still not prevail against her. One more quote from Robert Coleman. This is a direct quote. It's not who we are, but who he is that makes the difference. Remember the confession? It's not who we are, but it's who Jesus is that makes the difference. And Jesus gives this incredible promise. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I've mentioned in a small group already and I've mentioned this to you personally, so I'm not going to belabor it. But when you deal with gates... It's an interesting idea. The gates of hell will not prevail. Well, gates, they, they are what? Stationary. So that presupposes something about the church. If it says the gates of hell won't prevail, that presupposes that the church will be storming the gates of hell. And we find that in Matthew 28. Go! And what? Make disciples of all nations. All nations. Remember those nations that were cut off from God in the Old Covenant? Well, now it's wide open. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Lo, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go for it. It's wide open. Take it. When I first um, was called to come here, and I was raising support. There was a fellow church planner. I think he was in Delaware. He said, brother, take that hill for Jesus. I'll never forget that. See, to this day, I remember that. Take that hill for Jesus. Daniel Doriani puts it this way. Gates are defensive weapons. They are fortifications against attack. Therefore, hell's defenses will not prevail as the gospel goes on the offensive to win people to Christ, to raise the dead to life. Hell cannot thwart the advance of the gospel. 
The church will overcome hell's defenses and Jesus will build his church. One more thing in this text before I close that we cannot skip. He says to Peter and the rest of the apostles something interesting. He says, and I will give you what? An interesting thing. Keys. Keys to the kingdom. Now listen. If you're a guy like Pete Eck, excuse me for one moment. If you're a guy like Peter Eck, you, you will understand how important keys are. Don't worry, brother. You get a chance when you preach, you can use me. <laughs> Just like this morning when he says, when you come to church? I said, why? He said, because I locked myself out of the church. So I became a very powerful person, didn't I? Because I had something. What did I have? The keys. And in the Bible, we don't have time this morning, but in the Bible, when it talks about having the key, that means you have what? The power. The spiritual power. And in what sense do the apostles have the key? I will tell you how. He, he, Jesus goes on to explain it. He says, and, and actually the Greek tense, which I want to point out to you, which is very important, it, it, the note is even in the NIV if you want to look at the bottom so you know it's not something I made up. This is what it really means. Or the tense of it. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, when, when they would proclaim the gospel, the apostles, the good news of Jesus Christ, and when they proclaim, repent and believe the good news and you will be saved. And when people repented and believed, they declared, you are saved. You have eternal life. That is the key. The key is the gospel. And we could say with all our hearts, even along with the apostles, when someone truly repents and believes, we are only declaring what heaven has already declared true. They are now justified by the blood of Christ and faith in the Lamb. And at the same sense, and this is very heavy responsibility, it's very scary, when folks refuse to acknowledge Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they refuse to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, we can say, the gate is shut to you to heaven. You are not in the kingdom at this point. And we are only declaring what has already been declared in heaven. And that is the keys that Jesus is talking about here. It's the keys of the gospel. The, the apostles had it in a very unique sense. That's for sure. But now it's also invested in the church of Jesus Christ as she ministers the gospel and ministers discipline in the church. We're going to see that in chapter 18 in a little bit where it talks about if a brother sins against you, you know that whole passage? If he doesn't listen, take two. And if he doesn't listen, take it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, what does the church do? Treat him as a pagan or as a tax collector. And in that sense, the church has the keys. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't, don't have false humility. The gospel is the power of God. And it has to be believed in order for folks to enter. So what we've seen in this text, it's, it's a heavy text, it's a long text, is that Jesus, the builder of his church, accepts her confession, he blesses the confessor, and he sets the foundation. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to close with this. And I, I want you to be as encouraged as I have been just 
meditating on it the last couple weeks here, drinking it in and trusting in it and believing in the words that Jesus said here, and that's this. And I will close with this. It's not up to us. We are faltering. We are failing. But you know what? If we trust and obey through us, God has promised that He will continue to build this church. What does that mean for our church plant? I don't know. Individual churches open. Individual churches close. But we do know this. His church on earth will prevail. All these goofy things about the end of the world is going to happen because it is. No, they're not. No, it's not. The church will be here until Jesus comes. Can I get an amen? And for us, we have to say, Lord, thank you. I'm going to close with this. Thank you that we have a place at the table. We're not worthy to untie Peter's shoe. But by your grace and mercy, you've called us to be a living stone built on the foundation of Peter and the apostles with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Lord Jesus, use us. Work through us to build your church here in Atlantic City. Let's pray. Father, heavy things. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. Jesus, we thank you. You are a builder. You are the builder. And you've made a promise here. And we trust you to complete it until the day you come back. We thank you that we can call Peter brother and the rest of the apostles. We thank you humbly, Lord, that you even give us a place. We don't deserve a place at the table. By your grace, we are a part of your living building that you are building, your temple. God, we do pray for the the community here in Atlantic City. We do pray that you would add to your number not only those who are being saved and brought into this church, but any other Bible-believing church as well, Lord. But we do pray, Lord, that you would bless the work of your hands and further the work of New City Fellowship as well. For your glory, Jesus, that you might shine for all the world to see. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.